So welcome to uh, Eastlake. So glad that you're here. My name is Brandon, the teaching pastor, and I know what you're thinking right now. You're seeing the shirt. You're going, oh, so Gonzaga's out of the tournament. You move right on to baseball. Is that how this works? It's exactly how this works, guys. It's good to be a sports fan. Always something. There's never a week or very few weeks in the year where there's nothing to cheer about. We are on part three of a series called uh, Who Is This Man? <clears throat> it's good to be back and finishing up this series with you today. Uh, inside your program is a couple of things. There's one that's a note sheet in case I say something interesting. And if by chance you missed the first two um, parts of this message, uh, you can go online to eastlaketricities.com slash talks. And there's like video and audio podcasts and whatever. But um, in week one of this series, we talked about uh, how this is going to be a series about Jesus, which is, you know, aren't there's all your series supposed to be about Jesus? Um, sort of, yes. Um, but then also, I, I had a quote from a guy named H.G. Wells, who is an author and also historian, and in it, he said, like, I'm a, uh, he basically admitted, he goes, I'm a, I'm a secular historian, I don't believe in the claims of Jesus, and yet I cannot deny the gravitational pull towards the center of everything being this person, this Jewish carpenter named Jesus of Nazareth. And in another section, uh, somebody who kind of writes a little bit like him, said something like this, I don't believe in the divinity claims of Jesus, but I am utterly fascinated by him. And as I was thinking about when we were going to do this series, I thought, this is so good because listen, um, like I'm a professional Christian, like I get paid to be a Christian, a good, you know, believer, because um, I'm a pastor, that's kind of part of the, there's a joke in there somewhere. Anyways, um, I am a believer and would be even if I wasn't a pastor, but a believer in the, the divinity claims of Christ. And I am challenged uh, slash almost feel guilty about uh, the fact that somebody would be fascinated by him. And oftentimes I enter into an Easter season less than fascinated by Jesus, fine with him, great with him. I'm on board with it. I come to church. But um, when was the last time we've been fascinated by the person of Jesus? And so that's really been the purpose of the series, to develop a fascination so that we can fully uh, maximize or experience the Easter process and understand what's going on with that. So um, one of the prayers that I've prayed for a very long time and one of the prayers that um, my parents prayed over me uh, was as simple as, as this. It's a, it goes like this. Give, give me eyes to see. Father, give me the eyes to see beyond just what's in front of me. Give me eyes to see the bigger picture of things. Give me, when I watch this, let me understand the underlying story. Let me see. And as a parent, if you're a parent of high school kids, you, you may not use these words, but you've prayed that before. You read up, you clicked on some MSN.com article about how uh, teenagers' prefrontal cortex part of their brain isn't developed until age 25. And so they literally, their brain is not fully developed to be able to see beyond sometimes in that moment. And so you're going, Father, somehow give them the eyes to see that this is not all there is. Uh, that this breakup in the relationship or that this, uh, they failed the test or didn't make the team or something like that is not the end of the world, even though they're acting like it is the end of the world. Give them eyes to see. And so uh, my prayer for us um, this Easter, but then just in our individual lives is give us the eyes to see something. Because sometimes something can seem innocuous when in reality it is very, very political. Something that can feel kind of like not a big deal is actually a very, very big deal. We're going to look at one of those instances in Scripture um, today if we will have eyes to see it as it is. So 
Um, I'm going to start off by showing you a picture and ask you what it is, what, what, what do you notice first or what do you see? When you see a picture of uh, Jerusalem in uh, kind of modern day, what is it that you see? So go ahead and put that picture on the screen, guys. Uh, what's the first thing that you notice? Now, if you, uh, depending on your background, you probably notice different things. If you come from a Muslim background or, um, uh, or a believer in Islam, you probably notice the big giant gold dome. It's called the Dome on the Rock. It's the second most famous Islamic worship site next to Mecca. Um, inside of that um, is a giant rock about the size of this stage. Probably I had a chance when I was 16, my parents took me to Israel and we actually went inside. You walk through this big giant promenade thing and then you go inside this building. You have to take off your shoes and there are um, people there who are, are praying and, and, and worshiping and singing songs and all that. And on this rock, it is believed that that is where um, God formed Adam. Uh, for the very first time, created man on this rock. It's the same exact rock, coincidence or not, um, that uh, Abraham or attempted to sacrifice his own son Isaac, but then was stopped by an angel of the Lord. And it is also on this rock that Muhammad uh, ended his overnight ride, tied up his donkey at that wall and walked, in, walked to that rock and then ascended into paradise. And this is the last, you know, the last place that Muhammad's, Prophet Muhammad's foot uh, was on this earth and then left. So it's a very, very holy site for them. But if you're Jewish, uh, the thing that you probably notice first is uh, what's called the Western Wall. You'll see all these people huddled up below here and then this one giant limestone wall there. And it is on this location where Jewish uh, men and women gather together and pray and they write little pieces. There's little pieces of paper and pencils everywhere and you can write a prayer on it. And then you roll it up, and then you stick it in the crevice of the wall and of the rock. And then um, every week or month or so, they come in and clear them off, and then they're just refilled constantly. And, and the prayer oftentimes in that is, this is the last standing wall of the original second temple, the temple that was kind of, you know, rebuilt, the, the, the temple that, was, that existed in Jesus' day. It was destroyed eventually in A.D. 70, about 30, 40 years after Jesus walked uh, on, on the planet. And uh, this is as close as they can really get to the original Holy of Holies, which was the, the place, and w which for them, both in, in both cultures, the temple is, the, is a holy place. We, we know that, like, even if you're not familiar with their religion at all. Um, a temple is the intersection of heaven and earth. It is the place where those two things meet. It is where God makes his presence known. This is where you go. The temple has a monopoly on the worship of God. If you want to make a connection to God or make a sacrifice to God or have your prayers heard, you went to the temple. And, uh, uh, and, and this is what remains of it. And so therefore, they call it the wailing wall. They're wailing. Why? Because they so desperately want the temple to be rebuilt. They're long awaiting a rebuilding of the temple because they feel like uh, uh, at the end of time, God sends a Messiah and we rebuild the temple. And, and Israel once again becomes a nation that, pe that, the, that the nations flock to for advice and all of that. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the temple, which I know, it, you, you, listen, you've maybe been coming to East Lake for a while. You know that. Uh, uh, my teaching style varies depending on where we're at in a series, all right? When, we're, when I'm starting a series, I'm usually trying to sell you on a topic. So I'm like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Insert humor here, that kind of thing, and then get you to come back for it. And then we'll do some like really in-depth text. We'll show a text on the screen and go deep into it. And then every once in a while, I do a little bit, uh, I'm intrigued by history. I'm going to try and make it interesting. I'm hoping you have eyes to see uh, the importance of the history of the temple as it existed back then and then even today, because I think it has some uh, interesting perspectives. 
perspective for us, especially this being Palm Sunday, uh, everybody. So significant dates in the life of the temple. Um, the nation of Israel is called by God through the person of Abraham, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. Uh, Moses leads them out of Egypt and out of slavery in Egypt and into uh, the promised land, the nation that we know as modern day Israel. Unfortunately, the location of Israel, even in today's setting, is kind of like... Um, situated where it's a thorough path for basically all of the different, think of all of the major prominent ancient powers, right? You've got Egypt for a while, you've got Assyria, you've got Babylon, you've got Rome, and all, right in the middle of all of those is, uh, is Israel. It's the stomping grounds. If you wanted to fight Egypt, you had to go through Israel. If you wanted to fight Rome, you had to go through Israel. So it was, it was constantly being bombarded, and it's always been kind of like this underdog story, the whole nation of Israel. And they've kind of embraced that kind of ideology as well. But uh, the, the Old Testament, if you read through some of the passages and uh, the Kings and Samuel and, and read through the life of David, you realize that David fights all of these wars, fights all these, pop, these people off, and eventually claims this section of land uh, for the nation of Israel. And then uh, he feels called to build a permanent temple. We've been hauling around this Ark of the Covenant. We've been hauling around this tabernacle that we have to set up every once in a while and then tear it down. And we move and we set it back up again. And he's like, I, I want to build you something permanent, God. And he's like, well, your hands are... There's too much blood on your hands. This is how the story goes. There's too much blood on your hands. You will not build me a temple. Your son, Solomon, will build a temple. Solomon builds the very first temple uh, in, about, in about 950 BC. We're not really 100% sure when that was, but right around that time. And it's described as one of the most immaculate buildings ever built. Um, uh, they describe it like no, no expense was saved. They, they, uh, they, they went all out on everything. It was gold-plated this and gold-plated that. And the purpose was... Come see how a small nation has been blessed by the true God of the universe. Really, the statement for them was, let us show you the greatness of our God by the greatness of this architecture. Um, and uh, as a result of that, and yet still being kind of, again, like a thoroughfare, what happens over and over again throughout history is, these outside invaders come in, they, on their, on their way to defeat whatever other superpower, and they see this beautiful building, and they begin to strip it of its gold. They strip it of its, of its value, of its wealth, and eventually it just gets destroyed and destroyed. And the Babylonians come in in 586. This is the, this is the big destruction of the temple. 586 BC, destroyed by the Babylon, Babylonians from the east. About um, 50, 60 years later, we read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, that a guy named Nehemiah comes back and rebuilds a wall in the hopes that they can reestablish a temple. Because in that mindset, if you did not have a temple, then you didn't really have a religion. If your temple was in shambles and there was no place to worship, then your God really wasn't the true best God. And so we recognize we need to build this new temple. They come back in the, in the, the story of the Old Testament really ends with we're building a wall so that we can build a temple and then the, the story kind of closes. They ended up building the temple. It's not really recorded in, in Scripture at all, but they built a temple in about 515 B.C. It exists and kind of operates for several hundred years. And in 168 B.C., this, and they call it the Second Temple, Second Temple period is what they call it. In 168 B.C., it is desecrated by a, uh, a, an emperor who had taken over after the Babylonians, a guy named Antiochus IV. 
And he comes in, and when I say desecrated, I'm trying to get you to understand what he did, right? So he comes in and uh, builds a, ta- a, a statue to the god Zeus in the middle of the Holy of Holies, which is like a slap in the face to these Israelites who worship one god, not many gods, and definitely not the Greek system of gods as they knew it. He banned circumcision because he knew that that was so precious to them. We're not, we're not going to do that. And then he also sacrificed pigs on the altar to the, all of the different pagan gods, which is the huge no-no, even if you're not Jewish, you kind of know the whole kosher system. You're not sure why they can't eat pork, but you just know that they don't, and that pigs were like a big deal for them. And so he's, he, what he's doing is, is, is crossing a line that is so obviously intentionally hurtful that it cannot be avoided. It was not like, oh, that was an honest mistake. I had no idea that that offended you. I know this offends you. That's why I'm doing it. That offends us. Oh, I know it. That's exactly why I'm doing this. So I was trying to think of a modern-day example to try and show you how egregious this really was. And I found this clip from the year 2000. The, the video is going to be a little bit grainy, um, but so I apologize. But it's a football game between the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers. Back when Emmitt Smith, Troy Aikman uh, was on the team, and Terrell Owens is on the San Francisco 49ers. So we're going to play this, and there's not going to be any audio. I'm going to kind of voice over it for you and, and, and go with this. So go ahead and, and uh, here we go. No, keep that audio down. Anyways, I don't know who's turned that up. Um, so Terrell Owens catches a, uh, a pass in the end zone uh, and, and scores a touchdown. He then immediately proceeds, this is by the way in Dallas, to run to the center of the field at the 50-yard line. Do you know what's on the 50-yard line at Dallas Stadium? This is not the new Dallas Stadium, it's the old one. It is a big, giant star. He goes to the center of the star, raises his hands towards heaven and says, oh, this is basically desecrating the temple of worship. Emmett Smith, a few uh, quarters later, a few minutes later, scores a touchdown, immediately grabs the ball. What do you think he does, guys? He runs, takes off his helmet, by the way, runs to the center. Watch the authority at which he pounds this ball into the middle of the star and kneels there saying, not in our house, you don't do that. All right? Huge statement. A couple of plays later, want to guess what happens? Terrell Owen catches another touchdown. Guess what he does? You got it. Watch this. Runs to the center. Saw Emmett Smith slam the ball down the middle. Slams. Boom. There we go. If you want to desecrate our house of worship, we will send a message to you. There were several ejections, several flags later. But yes, this is what happens. You can cross our line once and we're like, shame on you. I'm really angry. Uh, But if you do it again, there will be a price to pay for all of this. This is what takes place. This is an illustration of the magnitude at which, which this took place for, the, for these Israelites. They were so hurt about this. All right, we can turn that off. He, he gets slapped and excited. But, um, so what happens is they begin to revolt. Now, they are massively overpowered and outnumbered. And yet at some point, you have to stand for something as a nation, right? We're probably going to lose, but we're going to fight anyways. And so a guy named Judas the Hammer Maccabeus, um, which is a great nickname, by the way. That was, uh, I wish I had that nickname in high school. Mine was a lot different than that. Um, It was the Hammered, or the guy who gets hammered, Maccabeus, begins what's called the Maccabean Revolution. Though we are significantly outnumbered, we will rise up and fight, right? And surprisingly and against all odds, they succeed. Now, not against the whole army of the Seleucid Empire, but against whatever, they had sent some people out, hey, listen, squash them like a bug, do whatever you gotta do, and they lose, to which the Jewish people are like, this is great, we regain control of our land temporarily, 
and our temper, our, our temper, uh, temple, excuse me, temple temporarily. Those are really two hard words to say back to back. Anyways, um, and, and so in that moment, they begin what's called the rededication of the temple. And in the rededication of the temple, they begin to use um, images to illustrate uh, the symbolic nature of their independence that has been fought for and endured. And the symbol that they choose to use are palm branches. And this palm represents peace and peace through victory, a peace that has been earned by us. Palm branches were all over the rededication of the ceremony of the temple. It's a political statement for them. In fact, during two major wars against Rome, Israelites rebel, Israelite rebels immediately and illegally minted two, uh, several different sorts of coins of currency. And on the coins, the symbol that they chose to represent kind of our independence from Rome and our independence from the currency system, and we're going to hit them where it hurts. We're not going to operate under your currency system. We're going to create our own. So we have some pictures of some coins that were minted. Look at this. Palm trees on all four of their coins. Why? Because palm trees were symbols of Jewish nationalism. The palm branch was a political symbol of an oppressed minority finally saying, enough. We don't need your version of peace. We create our own peace. So, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate or we remember, we reflect back on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on the week of Passover, a week prior to his crucifixion. And we celebrate them waving branches. And perhaps you've always thought, oh, he was probably hot and they were cooling him off. <laughs> that is not what is taking place here. They are waving their symbol of Jewish nationalism saying, finally, a savior has come. Finally, somebody to save us. Finally, somebody to set us free. This was, this was military language and military symbolism taking place. In fact, I want to read to you um, some verses. John chapter 12, this is what John, one of Jesus' disciples, records about the events. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting this, Hosanna which I put in translations in the brackets. That's, this is not in your Bible, but it says this, Lord, save us. Hosanna means Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel, which they're quoting from a chapter in Psalm, chapter 118. But I want to read that for you and show you a little bit of different, like a, a little liberty that they took when they quoted these things. Psalms chapter 118, verses 25 and 26 says this, Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So far, so good. Look at what it says. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Wait, wait a second. That's not what they said. What they said is blessed is the king of Israel. Now, Declaring somebody to be a king by inference means that somebody is not king, meaning we do not recognize King Herod as king over us. Blessed is the true king of Israel. We do not recognize Caesar's authority over us through Roman oppression. No, 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 no. We want a new king. Blessed is this new king of Israel. So I retranslated it for you. This is Brent's version of what they're trying to say or what the statement they're making. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who's going to overthrow Pilate, Herod, and Caesar. You see, military language, expectations. Now, 
Many of us know how the story ends. If you've been around Easter and, or uh, church around this time of, of year, you know that uh, it does not end well for Jesus. Uh, he refuses to fight. He's not who they thought he was. And they go from, and you often wonder, you go, I wonder how they turned from cheers to jeers so quickly. It was like a week. A week ago, they're waving palm branches, which we recognize now is military thing. We have eyes to see that this is a military thing and saying, Hosanna, this is the guy who's going to be the king of the Jews. And then a week later, they're like, crucify him, right? How, 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 how does this take place? (laughs) Ironically, we celebrate Palm Sunday on the week that baseball season opens because how many baseball fans, especially Mariners fans, right, have every March slash April wave palm branches saying, finally, we will make the playoffs and end this, by the way, multi-professional sport, longest drought for not making the playoffs ever, 16 years, you guys, and this is finally our year. Hosanna, D. Gordon, save us from ourselves. Nelson Cruz, please do it. And what, by like, what, mid-June when we're completely out of the hunt? Crucify him. Send him to AAA. Cut him all. Don't pay anymore. We don't want Scott Service anymore. We, we know it. We live it. You know what I mean? This is not all that foreign to us. Uh, Ron Heifetz wrote a book called Leadership on the Line. He was a Harvard business, uh, Harvard business Review author and teaches on leadership. He writes about leadership in this way. He says, leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate that they can stand. The art of maintaining leadership is disappointing people at a rate that they can stand, which is also, by the way, my informal motto for leading this church. My goal is to disappoint you at the rate that you can stand. Why? Because disappointment and failure is inevitable. I just want to spread it out as long as I can. So you're like, wow, we can't go anywhere else now. Our kids love it too much. He's an idiot, but you know, we're working on it. (laughs) In the last week of his life, Jesus exceeded the disappointment rate. Every single year around June, the mayors exceed our disappointment rate. This is why the people turned on him. They had these high hopes of Jewish nationalism, and he's like, I don't play that game. That's not who I am. That's not what I came for. And I'm going to disappoint you. (laughs) And I'm also going to point you to something significantly better. But there were basically three attitudes or strategies that you could fall into when it came to Roman occupation. To understand the context of the people that John is describing and Luke's describing when all these things are taking place, to understand the type of crowd and audience that Jesus walked into that week, Palm Sunday, back then, you need to understand a few things. That there were groups of people who had ideas of what the next steps were when it came to the success of Israel. Uh, Number one, we could either fight it. They were known as zealots. They were known as, we are waiting for one chance. We're, we're waiting for one more thing, one more time for him to go to the center of the field, step on the star, one, one more desecration of the temple. If you push our buttons, so be it, we will fight you. We're looking for a, a reason to fight. We're looking for a chance to riot, a chance to march, a chance to gather signatures, do all this kind of stuff. We can fight this thing, right? We can solve it through that. Uh, number two is withdraw from it. Um, the idea that... Uh, that um, In this culture, there were people who were like, you know what? We are called to be different. We're called to be unique. We're called to be super holy. And so what we can do is withdraw and enter into our own subculture and not really engage society, at least in as minimal ways as possible, and be so holy that God then comes, rewards our holiness by doing something about the situation. That was an option, too. They were called the Essenes. 
Uh, and then lastly, accept it and work with it, which is basically pragmatism at its best, political pragmatism. Um, Sadducees were people who were like, hey, we can't really do anything. Rome, I mean, come on. We're dealing with Rome, the magnitude at which their army and their success and the arm of their authority. There's no way around this. The best way is to just kind of work with it and to get rich off of it. And what's interesting is of all the 12, all of Jesus' 12 disciples fit into one of these categories. You've got Judas, who is a zealot. He's like, let's, let's do this. Let's fight. You've got Simon, who at one point cuts the ear off of a guy who comes to arrest Jesus, right? We can fight this thing. We can do this. You've got Matthew, a tax collector, who recognized we can't get around paying taxes to Rome, but if I can make a quick buck off of it, I can do this. All of Jesus' disciples, not, and not just his disciples, his entire audience fits into one of these three categories. And Jesus disappointed all three of these groups of people at an unsustainable pace. Imagine being a zealot, somebody who is very clear on who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. It's us versus them. And then one day, a centurion, a Roman soldier, comes up to Jesus. He's got a sick kid at home. He says, could you heal my sick kid? And Jesus says, yeah, let's go to your house and we'll take care of it. And he's like, I don't even need you to go to my house. You say the word. Listen, I know how authority works. I've seen what you've been able to do. I've heard your stories. I'm, I'm desperate. I'm a dad who's desperate for my kid. I'll do anything it takes. You say the word. I'll trust. I'll have faith that when you say it, it takes place. Because I don't understand how it works, but I'm in. And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, I've never found this great a faith ever in all of Israel. To which... To which his disciples are all behind him going, oh, come on, Jesus, that's like a slam on us. You know, you know we can hear you. We're like right here with you. He's like, this is the greatest person ever. Jesus, he's a freaking centurion, dude. Like you, you're, you're siding with the enemy here. And Jesus is basically saying, oh, I, I don't take sides. <laughs> I don't engage in an us versus them mentality. I don't believe in fighting for it. <clears throat> Imagine being somebody who thinks that own your own personal holiness. And uh, if I do all the things right, if I make all the right moral decisions, then God will reward me with a good life and blessing. And watching Jesus touch lepers, talk with prostitutes, attend parties of self-proclaimed sinners, invite them in to eat with him, turn water into wine, and not just wine, but like wine after they've had already too much wine. The wine's all gone, and he makes more wine. Can you imagine being like, I'm going to stand for this, and we are not going to... And then all of a sudden, he's doing this, and you're like, Gah, who are you? Who are you? Imagine being a person who is so immersed in a subculture to, f to see somebody who refuses to draw lines in the sand in that way. Or in terms of like coercive uh, uh, capitulation or, or accepting it and working with it. Listen to this story. Matthew chapter 22, verse 16 and 17. We're going to actually read the text on this one. Teacher. Uh, by the way, this is a group of um, religious leaders uh, who are trying to back Jesus in the corner. Trying to create an impossible question for him. Trying to create something that's like, you're either for us or you're against us. Based on how you answer this. And we're going to give you a yes or no question. And you cannot respond with a, what? It just depends. Um, you're going to pick one, and then you're going to be in trouble in one way or another. We know that you're a man of integrity. But first, they butter him up. Look what they do. Listen to this. We know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Oh, you are so great, Jesus. Tell us then, uh, us assimilators, I put that in parentheses, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? 
Is it right to pay? Because in paying the tax, you're, affor- you're affirming their occupation of our land. Um, and uh, so, you know, if we say no to taxes, then the IRS gets involved, and that's not a good thing. But if you, if you, if you do pay taxes, and you're affirming the fact that they have the right to be here, and so therefore um, all of these Jewish people who are Jewish nationalists are like, uh, well, you can't do that, Jesus. And here's Jesus' response. This is uh, pretty faint. You probably heard a version of this verse before. You didn't know where it came from. But render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Or give to Caesar what is his and give to God's what is God's. And the implication of this statement right here is really the importance of it is the second half of this verse or the second half of this part of his speech. The implication is that there are things in this world that are not Caesar's. There are things in this world that are not Caesar's. He's speaking to a group of people who are so adamant about their independence and the the reestablishment of Israel as a nationalistic sort of focus. And Jesus draws their attention away from that and says to them this statement, hey, there are things in life that are more important than that. There are things in life that are not Caesar's. It's a statement against imperialism. It's a statement against a world that says this is what's most important. It's really cool what you want to do on your own private time, but keep that. That's your private world. In the public world, this is what's most important, and this is how you operate. The right to dictate worship did not belong to Caesar. The claim to ultimate allegiance did not belong to Caesar. The valuation of human worth did not belong to Caesar. The religious conscience of a single powerless Israelite did not belong to Caesar. And most ultimately and most obviously, Jesus would say this, the title Lord, which basically meant like the person, the ultimate authority figure in your life, that does not belong to Caesar. He's trying to illustrate and talk about how there's another sphere above Caesar to which everyone, including Caesar, will eventually give account. He's basically saying, I'm introducing you to the idea of a separation of church and state. We oftentimes think that that's an anti-church thing. Like the church is like, well, we really lost that one in the course of American history, the separation of church and state. Jesus is the inaugurator of the separation of church and state. He's the one who introduced this idea. And he's saying, listen, when it comes to the civic duties, like power is such a big thing. People do anything for power. But anger and violence are not the way. Withdrawal is not the way. Co-opting for personal benefits is not the way. There is another way. There are things in this life that are not Caesar's. And you would do well to remember that. When they're waving their palm branches saying, we can get independence from them. He's like, you guys, you're fighting for the wrong thing. That's not what this is all about. You can be about the advancement and the flourishing of a government authority without buying into unquestioned nationalism. You can be pro-Rome. You can love Rome. And I'm using Rome as like a symbolic statement, okay? You could insert whatever country you want. Um, England back in the the 16th, 17th century. America in the 21st century. You can be pro-Rome. You can love Rome. Receive a valuable education. Give back through hard work and civic responsibilities. You can engage in fruitful enterprise that provides you with personal financial benefit while also balancing it with a responsibility to pay taxes because, A, you benefited from the infrastructure built by tax dollars that came before you, and B, you recognize the social responsibility to pay it forward in the same way that somebody a long time ago paid it forward for you. 
You can enjoy the aesthetic value of the arts and the medical benefits of the sciences of Rome and still not worship Rome. You can be a citizen and yet understand that there is a difference between that and my full ultimate allegiance. This was kind of a new paradigm for them. And not them. This was a new paradigm for the world. Um, when Rome took over countries, they didn't really have a strong religious system. The, the, the Roman gods were like, we're going to assume the Greek gods, but we understand the, the value of religion. People will do things in the name of religion and be ultimately dedicated to it. It creates an ultimate allegiance that we want. In fact, the word religion comes from the same word root as ligament, the thing that holds, that binds things together. If we are going to have, a, if Rome is going to continue to be successful, we should utilize religion for our own personal benefit. For the very first time, Jesus begins to separate this and be like, no, 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 this is not how this works. Christians, you live differently. And so a second century writer, a non-Christian, a secular historian, writes this in observation about the identity of the Christian movement. And here's what he says. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity, either in locality or in speech or in customs. But while they dwell in the cities of Greeks and barbarians, as the lot of each is cast, the constitution of their citizenship is nevertheless quite amazing and admittedly paradoxical. In other words, they're spread out all over. And yet, whatever nation they're in, they seem to be from there, but they're kind of not from there. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is a foreign country. When they're there, they love it. They're very pro them. But when you actually push them to the edge, they're like, oh, but I'm not really from here. I mean, I'm, I want to be an American. I'm proud to be an American, but it's my ultimate allegiance lies elsewhere. And Rome had no idea what to make of this Jesus movement. Something unprecedented in the world was taking roots. And Jesus in that day speaks to these people with his disciples kind of peeking in over their shoulder. And John, for our sake, writes all of this down so that we can almost, in a sense, peek over the shoulders of the disciples and hear Jesus say, Again, there are things in this world that are not Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Do what is right when the civic responsibilities and duties. But live with a reminder. There are things in this world that are not Caesar's. So for us, what does this mean? Like, I'm not Jewish. I don't care about temple. Like, you kind of made it interesting. I like the video of the football. If you have more videos of football stuff, please incorporate those more often. Um, that helps. Um, but what does all of this mean for me? Well, we all are waving palm branches of some sort going, God, save us from this. God, if, if, if uh, what, here's, what I, here's what we need. We need independence from debt. I need independence from this. I need independence from this. If you'll come alongside the plan that I already have and bring your whole superpowers, being able to do all the things that you can do and form, we can be a great team, God. We could really do this together. I have an idea of what independence is important for me and, 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 and what it's going to take and what success looks like and whatever. And he would quietly remind us that there are things in this world that are not Caesar's. When you're tempted to operate as if wealth accumulation is the purpose of your existence, why do you work? I work to make money. Why make money? So I can have a place to live and car to drive and food for my kids and all this kind of stuff. Great. Awesome. It's great. But doesn't sometimes it get to be more than that? Doesn't sometimes it feels like, like title and 
What about, what about when you're sacrificing family to make more money and you're like, I don't even know what I'm going to do with this money, but I know that more of it is enough. Jesus would say, listen, in those moments, listen, you can be pro-Rome. You can be pro this job. I'm not, I'm not asking you to secede from society and crawl in a cave and just read your Bible all the day. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you go and you do those things, that there's something in the back of your mind that reminds yourself that there's more to this life than just that. That there are things in this world that are not Caesar's. That there's a way of doing things that doesn't just fit in with what the world says is successful. This is what it's going to take. This is what you need. Eh, it's really good. I want a home. I like indoor plumbing. I like all of those things. I like having food in the fridge. I'm going to continue to work to provide for my family. But as I do it and as you do it, we remind ourselves that ultimately... It is not deserving of our ultimate allegiance. I am proud to be an American. I stand. I put my hand over my heart at every, uh, every like when they do the whole Pledge of Allegiance or the uh, national anthem at, at, at a game. I, I, I'm, I'm all about that. But as a Christian, it's, it's a reminder that there is a world that I am a part of, that I am a citizen, that I'm just a sojourner in, the, in this spot that my uh, ultimate roots are elsewhere. When you're experiencing something very personal and very painful, when you're experiencing suffering, you remind yourself that there are things in this world that are not Caesar's. When you're exposed to the futility of life, there are things that are not Caesar's. There are things that are not Caesar's. There is something ultimately more that we are called to be and called to be a part of. So we ask God, forgive us for those times where we've come to you with our plans of how you could be a part of this great thing called Brent's life and really do some amazing things together (laughs) and instead allow you the space to be who you are because I'll find myself fascinated by you and I'll say, God, who is this guy? Who is this man? May we have eyes to see in the moments where we have bought into a lie of what is most important and what deserves our most allegiance. And when we have turned away from the understanding that that is reserved for one person alone. Now, uh, we are going to uh, close this this, uh, I'm done with the talk. We're done with the series. Uh, we're going to uh, participate in something called communion now. Um, the band, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And uh, we do communion at the end of every series. And um, it's a way of, for us of reminding ourselves of the, the uh, really a couple of things. One, the uh, great sacrifice that was made for us, a statement of God's love for us throughout a generation. We do it communally together. Um, so it's like we're doing it as a community and as a family. And then we also have, a, it has future implications. So there's a past, present, and future participation look in communion. Um, Practically speaking, we have two stations on the side and one in the center. The one in the center is a green plate. It's got gluten-free bread and juice. The two on the outside have like a French bread, like with gluten. So if you like bread, um, then you're going to want to go to the outside. Uh, And then wine as well. So based on dietary restrictions or age restrictions, pick which one is appropriate for you. The band's going to play one last song. Everyone is invited to participate in communion. Um, uh, However, if you're uncomfortable, we never want to make you do anything that's uncomfortable. And so you are free to simply stand uh, where you're at and reflect on the words of the song, reflect on what we've talked about today, and, and really begin to question 
if I, am, am I battling with this ultimate allegiance thing? Am I, am I really, am I living as a sojourner? Am I, am I taking full advantage of it? Am I, am I doing you know, what I can and enjoying it? But am I living with a sense of, of uh, aloofness in this to the, to the point where I know whose I am and where, I, where eventually it all ends up? So, uh, and then at the very end, after the song, I'll come up and do a formal closing. Um, but would you stand with me? I want to pray for us. Father, I pray that this year we would have the eyes to see the significance of what was taking place and what you kind of went through and uh, what, what, what the Jewish nation experienced in those moments of um, anticipation and then disappointment, but only disappointment because our eyes were on the wrong thing. All of us have been there and done that anticipation of what's going to bring fulfillment in us, disappointment when it doesn't come about. And our prayer is that you would then move us to that spot to recognize that that was never the goal in the first place. Even if we got that, we wouldn't have been happy. I mean, for a moment, maybe, but not forever. Help us to recognize true dependence, true allegiance, true conformity to who your uh, son was and the example and the invitation to walk in his footsteps that you offer to us. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like for us individually and the curse act on it. In your name, amen.